Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Well, as I always remind you, one mineral you should be worried about not getting enough of, that is magnesium, the body's master mineral involved in many critical reactions. Big problems, though. Magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which may be why up to 80% rather, the population may be deficient. Most supplements contain only a couple of forms, when in reality, there are at least seven that your body needs and benefits from. I'm excited to tell you about, again, a product you need to know about, Magnesium Breakthrough. It is the ultimate magnesium supplement, easily the best out there all seven forms of the mineral is available through magnesium breakthrough it's finally back in stock everybody magnesium breakthrough has been selling faster than the company who makes it by optimizers can keep up it's already sold out a few times and due to supply shortages with everything going on in the world it this could be sold out again very quickly so our team here at Dr. Drew Pod was able to arrange for some stock to be set aside just for our audience. The best deal available on this product right here, seriously, with volume discounts uh, combined with our customers' 10% coupon code at Dr. Drew 10 you can save up to 40% off select packages of Magnesium Breakthrough. Amazing value with the code Dr. Drew 10 It's only available at this specific website, magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. You will not find that deal at Amazon or even the company's own website exclusively for our podcast listeners and for a limited time while supplies last. They have completely revamped the checkout process so it is easier, friendly. Magnesium Breakthrough, the most effective magnesium supplement out there. Say goodbye to having to buy multiple different kinds. Just one, Magnesium Breakthrough. Go to magbreakthrough, M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K. K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H magbreakthrough.com slash D-R-E-W Drew, use the coupon code DrDrew10 and you can save up to 40% off select packages to get the most full spectrum and effective magnesium ever. Everybody, welcome to Dr. Podcast. Uh, Thank you all for supporting the folks that support us so we can keep this thing underway. Uh, don't forget uh, After Dark at drdrew.com as well as Adam and Drew. You guys, we appreciate the support of that as well. And I'm doing a stream on a regular basis at the website where we try to make sense of the whole COVID disaster. Today, I'm welcoming Scott Carney, investigative journalist, author, anthropologist. His new book is The Wedge, Evolution, Consciousness, Stress, and the Key to Human, Human Resilience. And uh, Scott, I have to tell you, just the title of that book got me. I said I must speak to this man. So, so here we are. Nice. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is uh, it's quite a time we live in right now. Yes, indeed. I, I, I'm not even sure how to even frame that. Let me give some more specifics of uh, Scott. It's Scott Carney, C A R N E Y dot com, and at S G Carney on Twitter. Uh, you may know Scott from some of his work with Wim Hof, uh, which is you know, what Adam has been geeking out with you about, but I think I'm going to geek out with you about something else. I want to talk about the book. I want to talk Love about it. the book. Tell me about it. Uh, so yeah, the, the wedge, it started off with me um, first meeting Wim Hof back in 2011, uh, where I was the first investigative journalist or first real journalist to ever write about him. And, I, and just a really briefly about the Wim Hof method, Basically, this guy's known for climbing up Mount Everest in his skivvies, um, sitting in ice water for crazy amounts of time. And, uh, and he made these claims that he could control his immune system at will and basically give people superpowers. So I had just been writing um, like lots of articles and was working on a book about how um, sort of that search for superpowers through meditation can be dangerous and even kill you. So... When I heard about Wim, I was like, this guy's a charlatan and he's going to get people aced. You know, the people are going to freeze to death following his methods. And I flew out to see him in 2011. Uh, but my whole plan sort of backfired because instead of like debunking him as a charlatan, I hung out in the ice water with him and <laughs> I was warm. And then I was like sitting on the snow and all the snow was melting around me. And then I ended up climbing up a mountain in my skivvies. 
And that journey just totally like radically changed my opinion on things and, 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 and really opened up this whole world of trying to um, work on the body by using environmental stimulus because Wim Hof is not God, right? He's not an angel. There's nothing supernatural about him. But what he found is that when we put ourselves into stressful situations, uh, our bodies respond. Our bodies actually step up to the challenge and become stronger. And so I followed Wim for about eight or nine years doing his method every day. And I ultimately climbed up Mount Kilimanjaro in a bathing suit with him and it was negative 30 degrees out. Jesus. And and I survived. I know it's sort of insane. And, and, and then I, I got the top of the mountain and I was like, well, I've done this long enough and I want to see what else is out there. And that's really where the wedge comes in because the way I see that concept, uh, when I was sitting in, in Wim's ice water pond behind his house, uh, there's this stimulus coming in from the outside world, right? That's telling you to clench up and, and fight your way through that stimulus. But what Wim teaches is that instead you're supposed to relax. You're supposed to do the opposite of what your body wants to do. And, you know, in sort of the medical terminology, you're supposed to go from a sympathetic state, that's your fight or flight responses, into the parasympathetic state inside the ice water. And when I did that, I found a new way to heat my body. And when he was first said to me, I'm in the ice bath, and he says, Scott, relax. I literally had this image of a wedge come into my mind as, uh, as, the, as the way of like really separating that stimulus of the ice water from the response that I give it to my mind. So what I'm doing in this book is finding all of the ways outside of ice water uh, that we can do that. Well, keep going. I mean, and, and describe more what you mean by that. <laughs> So, uh, so in any sort of stimulus, anytime you're in an environment that, that makes you feel something, those sensations have meaning, right? That we evolved as from, from earlier forms of us to now, uh, sensing the environment. And that information was important. And the reason why we have consciousness is to make decisions about the environment. Well, it's not just decisions about what room to walk into or what animal to, to go hunt, right? Or what, you know, internet fight to get into. It's also the actual sensations. We have an element of choice in how we feel them. So if you, for instance, were to jump into an ice bath and everyone can think about what that feels like, like it sucks, right? You're like, ice bath sounds terrible, Scott. Why are we even talking to you? Um, uh, you can go into that with that apprehension and say, this is going to be the worst ice bath in the world and I'm going to die. Or you can think, I can do this. I can rise to the challenge. Actually, this is a joyous moment. And that switch changes the way um, that ice bath, you experience the ice bath. And weirdly, it also changes the way that your body responds to it and how the body chooses to heat itself in that environment. So let me just kind of drill into the, the cold water stuff for a minute. Sure. Because, um, you know, I know Adam's way into this and I've been doing the cold showers and stuff for as long as he's been talking about it. And, and I've noticed there is a little bit of a, a thermostat or something in your head where your body goes, your body just goes, uh, oh, this, uh, this is not so hard. I've done this before or something. Uh, and, and that's sort of the first, probably the first phase of all this, right? Because uh, I feel like, you know, I, I've read literature about like feral children and things like that, for instance, who don't feel cold. So eventually mm. you sort of lose your capacity to feel these things if you're exposed to it all the time. Take, am I on to anything? Can you can you expand oh. on that? That's just oh. my own personal observation. So no, absolutely. Like one thing that I love talking about is when um, you know the pilgrims first came to America, right? You know this the 1600s. You know uh, uh, winter and spring. This happens, right? And the first person they met was this guy named Samoset in in uh, you know Cape Cod, and he walks, and the, the pilgrims are all huddled up in their coats and the, the things that they're, they're, they're you know, that's keeping them warm. And it's like a snowy, blustery day on windswept Cape Cod. And the guy who walks into their camp is in a loincloth, right? He's literally just sort of hanging out. And there's, there's all these like um, uh, etchings of this first meeting. And, and, uh, and for weird reasons, Samoset knows English. And there's a long story behind that that we're not going to get into here. Mm. But but Samoset, uh, the, the pilgrims see him, they're like, oh my God. And they like run out and give him a coat. And he's like, 
cool. Thanks for the coat. Uh, and and what, what is really interesting about the Algonquin at that time um, is that they would put their children into snow mm. for 15 minutes a day mm. during the winter mm. and it would give them amazing resilience. Uh, yeah. But even, you know, if you want to drill down into like the, the, the biology of this, it's super fascinating. Um, think about the very first time you feel anything like our brain, right? Uh, yeah. uh, sits inside of our head. And it's basically, you know, you can think of it like in a float tank, right? It's in like sort of this spinal fluid and brain fluid. And the only way it knows anything about the world is through your sensory pathways, through your peripheral nervous system, through your eyes, through your ears, through your nose and whatnot. And from birth, I mean, we have a few instincts. There's a few things that are sort of wired in there, but everything we learn about the environment is from experience. It's through those chemical uh, and, uh, and electrical signals that, that, that fly through our, our um, body. And one of the things that I, I came to understand while writing The Wedge was uh, that the, the actual process of formation is actually entirely subjective. Uh, the formation, formation of impressions about what the environment formations of, of impressions really about everything. Um, but yeah, it's sensation at first, you know, objective you, in the sense that it's a, it's a, a one skull experience or, a sen- or, or, or subjective in the sense that it's a choice. Cause I, I think later I, I'm, I'm on with the choice assessment, but as a child, well, it's interesting, right? Because yeah. your brain is never not in your body, right? It's always right. getting that information. Your body's trying to figure out the world. And I think yeah. the wedge is sort of a fundamental power that we have since birth. And it's something that we're trying to do to try to take control of our body where we go- we're going for basically autonomic, right? When you're born, yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah. you look down and you can't control your arms. You're like, what the hell's that? How do I figure that out? And right. you only learn to use it by sort of, um, it, it's essentially stress. It's trying to sort of work against that physical structure and somehow you form the neural connections to move that under conscious control. And as we get older, you know, we use the, we use this sort of encounter against stress over and over to extend, expand our abilities until we don't feel like we need to anymore. Uh, what I'm finding though, is that we can actually keep on expanding them by keep on pushing ourselves against difficult things like the shower, like the, like the 10 or 15 different things that I'm talking about in this book. Um, but I think this concept of neural symbols is actually really useful. Say again, neural, 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 neural symbols, symbols. Okay. And if you, if if you, let me just describe it for a second, it's a little bit in the weeds, but it's really, really fascinating. And I think it's going to, there's a payoff here. Uh, which is the very first time you feel something. And let's just use the example of a cold shower, right? Uh, Or like an ice bath. Let's say you've never felt the cold before for some reason, right? And I don't know what this person is, but they've never felt the cold. And you're going to about to plunge them into the ice bath. Uh, They drop into that, that environment, that stressful environment. And this signal from their nerves, fires into their brain, right? Goes up the peripheral nervous system, goes up the spine and goes into the very lowest areas of the brain. This is the limbic system. And uh, and it's coming in as basically just data. Like it doesn't make any sense. All that the limbic system knows is that it has a really high volume because it's a super loud stimulus. And so I like to, I'm gonna use a metaphor here. The limbic system is something like a library. And every library has a has a, a a librarian in it, and so she gets this signal, and she looks in her library of books, and and she tries to see if that signal matches anything in her books. And she's ever felt this signal before, but she hasn't because she's never been in ice water. So what she does is she kicks this signal over to the paralimbic system, which is just another conglomeration of brain structures like a centimeter away from the limbic area, and the limb and and this guy we'll call him a bookbinder, takes that signal and he bonds it with your current emotional state, right? And this is what gives meaning to that. So this is the the loud signal of ice water and your current emotional state, which is probably abject terror and horror. And that probably actually comes in from some instinctual stuff that's there from before, but it comes back down, abject terror and horror. That's what ice bath means. She takes that book, files it away, and then you have your ice bath experience. Now, here's the really interesting thing about neural symbols is that the next time you have that same sensation, you jump into the ice bath, 
the signal comes up, the librarian gets it. She looks all over her books and she sees that it's already there. The ice bath is unmitigated terror and horror. And then she pulls that signal off and you do not experience it in the present moment, which means that every time you experience anything, you're living in your emotional past. And that's like, and, and this like neural symbols, like they happen, you're forming billions of them. I'm taking sort of an extreme example of them, of course. But if you think about it, these are the bits and bytes of the human software that makes up the hardware of our bodies. You, you so get- so I, I completely agree with the assessment that the, the, the metaphor is interesting. You're, you're talking about a region called the insular cortex. Yes. Uh, and I, there's a great book. I'm trying to find it. Gary, maybe you can help me. Ingrid, Indrid's, Indris Viscontis always reference it. Somebody else referenced it too that I was interviewing. Is it how we feel or how, let's see, how, or how do you feel? I'm looking it up on Amazon. Uh, it's literally how do we get interoceptive experience from our body? Yes. And, and you're right. It's deeply embedded in the uh, autonomic nervous system. And, and what, you know, I think most people are here. How do you feel? It's called. It's by a guy named, uh, hang on. It's how do you feel in an interoceptive moment with your neurobiological self by a guy named, named Bud Craig. And it, 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 he goes through in great detail elucidating this mechanism. And, and I think a lot of people are aware that we have like a homunculus on, on our parietal cortices, yeah. you know, like a sensory mm-hmm. or, or motor ex- information. Well, we have a homunculus, a, a whole series of layers of homunculi in our yes. insula cortex. And it goes from anterior to posterior. And it gets more and more clearer and refined as you move forward. Uh, yeah, here it is. This is it. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, it is not uh, for the faint of heart reading. It's for a really neurobiologist, but it, it changed my life. Love it. Uh, yeah, that's great. It, and he is really give, trying to break down exactly what you're talking about in the very, very specific neurobiological mechanisms. Um, so you're onto it. You're onto it. Oh, yeah. Maybe even as I hear you talking about it, you know, our, our pain patients, their big problem is this region of the brain. Yes. Uh, the, the emotive or misery component of pain is what's going crazy. Mm-hmm. And they can't control it. They can't regulate it. And, uh, you know, you're this kind of stuff you're talking about may hold the clue to one day uh, developing therapies for people like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, You know, one one thing that I really have found in this and, you know, um, I am so glad that you're of your medical background because this is going to make it so we could really geek out so that. no. Yeah, I said I was going to geek out about this. But the the. um. Interos- uh, uh, shit, I, I totally forgot what I was going to talk about. Interoception. Yeah, is- the pain, pain and ansel- insular cortex and emotive, emotive experiences of sensory experiences is what mm-hmm. you're talking about. And, and, and your librarian is essentially the thalamus, which is, which is sending information to the amygdala going, this is important, fire right. off. It also sends it up to the insula, which says, oh, my God, this is awful. Mm-hmm. And remember the awful and respond to the awful yep. and let the other parts of your brain that know about awful come on in with this when it's awful. But, but that's all stuff you're right. Can be, can, it's kind of conditioned away more than cho- you, you have to choose to work on it. I don't know. It's people, when they, when you say choice, people think about consciousness and conscious right. choice. And this is, it's a little off that, right? It's not like, I'm not going to feel cold. It's like, it's a little different. It, it's a different part of the brain, right? Well, it, yeah, I mean, so the choice to 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 resist that is really yeah. where the wedge happens, and it happens at a conscious level. But it also that conscious decision inflects things that are lower down, and right. and, and this is why I'm so interested in sensation, right? You know, we we find it very easy to geek out on the 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 mechanisms, the hormones, the the the, the pathways that that work in the brain, but really yeah. what our tools are that we are born with, right, are our sensations. Mm-hmm. And if you have this sensation coming in from the outside, which is that ice bath, for instance, or, you know, it could be a, a 20 other things, mm-hmm. you have some choice in, 
in what that is like. If you think that that sensation is horror, it's going to feel much worse. If you think that sensation is rebuilding resilience, building something better, your body will actually respond. The, 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 your biological mechanisms will change to some degree. And I'm not, I know you could take what I'm saying and push this into like absurdity, right? I'm not talking about getting superpowers. I'm not talking about um, becoming something crazy, right? But what you do is you get resilience is that you don't necessarily fire your sympathetic pathways. Um, you actually can, can re remain in this sort of rest and digest state, even in the presence of stress. And by doing that, you start to be able to toggle um, in, in and out of, of, of uh, fight or flight or rest and digest between sympathetic and parasympathetic. So, uh, again, I want to get a little deeper into the concept of the wedge, if you don't mind. But, yes. But, but before we do, what does that – so you're saying you sort of develop an ability to regulate your autonomic system. Would that be another yes, way to yes. say that? Yeah. For sure. And, and what advantages – I can think of advantages, but you tell me what advantages does that provide for you? So lots of them. One of them, the most obvious, it would be anxiety and depression. You know, when we, we live in a world where we don't have real threats, right? You go back to our, our prehistoric ancestors, right? They're on the plains of Africa and there's a lion running out of the, at them. They have to go dump adrenaline for energy and, and cortisol uh, to fight this guy, right? Because they're going to fight or run from that lion. In, and most of our, our ancient challenges have physical responses to them, right? We have, we have adrenaline and cortisol to, to get us out of like all sorts of problems in our prehistoric era. But in the present day, we're using those same systems to fight trolls on the internet. Not right. that you would know anything about that, yeah, Dr. Drew. <laughs> um, but but we would have like, you know, your 401k goes bad, your healthcare, your COVID in a way that you can't affect anything, right? Because honestly, I don't, you and I don't have much effect on what happens with COVID, but we are still firing those stress hormones. And then we don't have a physical um, output to it, right? There's no fit, you know, the, the lion comes and you stab the lion. So you're using that energy. But when you, you're firing adrenaline, you're firing cortisol and you don't have an output by either physical or emotional, what happens is that turns inside and, and, and really messes you up. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, this is anxiety. This, this can be depression in some ways. And what I found, and this is nuts, Drew, this is nuts. What I'm going to tell you here is no. that when I started doing the Wim Hof method, uh, so this is in 2011 and I was just going there to debunk him, but then I learned it worked. I was like, cool, my life has changed. What I was not thinking about really at all was the fact that I had had canker sores since I was a kid. Like, and for me, they were particularly bad. These were like dime sized canker sores. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I would get them probably once a month and they would last about a week. And these are essentially autoimmune illnesses, right? Like really it's like the weakest auto, like the least interesting autoimmune illness yeah, for yeah. me they were a big deal. I started doing the Wim Hof method and they never came back. Like mm -hmm. it was just sort of a side thing. And, uh, and there was this really interesting study. And I think you're going to like this about the Wim Hof method and um, immune uh, suppression where he went to Radboud university in the Netherlands. And he claimed that he could turn off his uh, immune response and they said that's probably not true, and <laughs> and so they they injected him with endotoxin, right? So this is a heat killed E. coli bacteria. And usually, what happens when you get injected with endotoxin is your immune system says, "Hey, this is an invader, and I'm going to have a primary immune response." So this is going to be your fever, your achy joints, um, you know, all of the stuff you might get with a flu. And so the people who designed this test were actually designed um, uh, like a, a immune suppressant drugs. Like if you get a kidney, right, you, you don't want your body to reject the kidney. So they designed the test of those drugs. So the people they in, who took those drugs, who then got eject, injected with endotoxin, if the drug worked, they wouldn't have a reaction. That means the drug was good. What Wim Hof was saying was that he was the drug, right? He would just do the drug himself. So they injected him with endotoxin. And nothing really happened. He complained of a minor headache. That was all. Which initially people said this was really this was really cool, but obviously one person is just one person. So 
you know, what can we draw out of that? So then a year later, and this is, this is the, the, the week after I met Wim in Poland. So he, they did this, they brought 12 college students from Radbound University and they did the same training that I did, which was a breathing protocol, sitting in ice and relaxing in the ice. Uh, then they brought all these people back to the lab and they injected all of them with endotoxin. And they all had the same results as Wim Hof. A single, a single ice bath? Uh, no, it was a week of ice baths, mm. a week of ice baths. And then they came back and then they did, they injected them. So it was probably they, a day once a day sort of thing. How long are they for? What's the, so the ice bath, when I'm doing, was doing whim stuff, uh, you would sort of build up to like a 10 minute, um, sort of, uh, splunge into his lake. And then you'd climb up a mountain in your bathing suit and you're controlling your body temperature in this hostile environment. Uh, it's really quite quick to learn. And the other part of his, his protocol is the breathing method where you essentially you superventilate <laughs> until you're dizzy and tingly. And then you exhale and you hold for as long as you can. And you do that three or four times until you're holding your breath for about three minutes. And, the way, and this basically you're blowing off all your CO2. By blowing off your CO2, your gasp reflex is delayed uh, and you're able to hold your breath for ridiculous amounts of time. But these are the two basic components of the Wim Hof method. The people who did that for a week, and you know, it was a little bit more intense than just the 15-minute thing, um, they all had no response to endotoxin, which showed that at least it was possible that he was basically turning off his immune systems um, over a reaction to this. Well, that I mean, was the, really bizarre. You know, the immune system evolves with the neurological system, and uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty clearly as there's a lot of evidence that it's tied in with the autonomic nervous system in ways we don't understand. So right. not as though this is completely in unfounded science. Right. No, absolutely. And, and um, for me, it's been, it's been, you know, this is the, the problem with being an investigative journalist and you'll, you will recognize this is that I get lots of anecdotes from people, right? I meet tons of people who've had these, um, really remarkable experiences. But what we don't have yet is a data set of thousands of people who've had like canker sores like mine that have gone right, away, right? right? Or right. part, you know, but I've met people who've had symptoms of Parkinson's come under control. I've met people who've had diabetes reverse and Crohn's disease reverse by doing this stuff. Um, the thing that worries me is, is we could get too excited about this and, and maybe stop medical treatments. And that right. would be a really bad bad outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other side, what I'm never, what I don't think is ever going to happen is, you know, we're never going to get one of these gold standard studies from a pharmaceutical company where you spend a hundred million dollars to get a perfectly randomized control group uh, and, and settings where, where you're like, Oh yeah, that definitely works. Right. right? I just right. don't see that, that funding paradigm coming in. So let's, let's keep going down the rabbit hole. Cause one, one of the sure. things that interests me is, so you're an anthropologist by training. Yes. And, you know, one of the reasons I, I found Jordan Peterson years ago, because he, in my estimation, he was trying to combine psychology and anthropology and myth and, mm -hmm. and religious experiences and try to understand why humans do that, why humans have those things. And right. what, what does it tell us about humans? So, so I'm always interested in somebody with anthropological training. Do you want to... Do you want to talk about that first? Because because we're going to get into consciousness. Because that's where I want to oh, go. Yeah. Next. Um, My anthropological training. So I went through graduate school. I got to the <clears throat> dissertation uh, for a PhD in anthropology, and then I dropped out to do become an investigative journalist. So um, the the thing that links all of my books and my first book is on organ trafficking around the world. I'm one of the, like the few experts on organ trafficking. I spent six years sort of looking at how people buy and sell kidneys and hearts and skeletons and hair and surrogate pregnancies and stuff like that. And it was mostly looking at the commercial aspects of this. Uh, and it's a horror show. Uh, and uh, that book is called the red market. Uh, I wrote a book on um, called the enlightenment trap, which is, essentially how meditation can, can really mess you up if you're doing it wrong. Like if you're going with the wrong sort of teachers, if you have these expectations of superpowers, Interesting. Uh, you can get into a lot of trouble. And I actually knew 
you know, several people who've died or ended up in insane asylums by pursuing sort of tantric teachings and like really sort of like in-depth knowledge. So it's really odd that I've ended up in the place where I am now, where I'm saying, look, here's something that sort of looks like a superpower, right? Here's something that sort of looks sort of crazy. Uh, So, you know, I don't even know where my life is going to go next because, uh, you know, I just sort of put myself, I try to immerse myself into these situations and then try to understand what it means to be human uh, in all of this. Right, which is what fascinates me. And and so back to the wedge before we go to consciousness, describe the wedge. So it is a way to fo- to separate stimulus from response, uh, or in some cases, a, a, a way to in to decrease the space between stimulus and response. It's a way to sort of have some control over how we react to the environment, especially ones that are stressful, especially ones that have those really loud signals that come in through your nerves, and mm-hmm. you're. You, are we saying that if we can tolerate things like cold, that it, it in, by itself translates in the ability to, re, you know, uh, regulate other emotional experiences or is there some procedure we have to go through? So it's not just cold, you know, and, you know, there's several types of cold. There's fast cold and slow cold. For instance, slow cold is keeping your house at 50 degrees where you just sort of like feel cold. Fast cold is like you jump into ice water, right? Where there's this really quick switch. Um, The slow cold is, uh, is actually a lot harder to control because it creeps up on you. But that fast switch is something where you can see that change happen rapidly Mm -hmm. and then you can exercise your control because your body wants to do something right your body has this desire to make an immediate reaction which is the clenching up right it's that it's that oh fight or flight and when that it toggles in that direction you have the ability to say no let's not toggle i'm going to resist that it's the same thing like right now if you if someone tickled you drew Mm -hmm. did you have an assistant there who could tickle you because i want to see it sorry (laughs) Mm-hmm. let's say someone would tickle you. You can say, I don't want to be ticklish, right? You can like will yourself not to be ticklish. Or when a sneeze is coming on, you can sort of like think, what, what do you do? Think non-sneeze worthy thoughts or, yeah. you know, you focus on those sensations, but you can at least delay the sneeze. And that's really the wedge as well. It's just not super applicable for sneezes. Uh, but when you learn to do these things in multiple um, uh, environments, right? Not just ice water, but also, you know, I have things that I deal with fear. I deal with um, sleep, with sound, you know, all of these uh, uh, different ways that you can experience something. If you can modulate your sensory changes, what you can also do is modulate your emotional changes. Because remember right. when I said it was sensation and emotion bonded together. Yeah. That's the- so, so let me go back to my experience of it. I, uh, first of all, I, I have this interesting experience where for a few seconds, I can't tell if it's hot or it's cold, which is kind yes. of always a fascinating experience. All, all I can feel is that it's, it's, in, it's burning. It's like, it's burning. It's so cold. It's burning. Uh, and then I take a few breaths and, and I, what I try to tell myself is positive thoughts. Like, um, not just, I think Wim Hof used, I think I got this from him or something. It's not, not just to do endure it, but to love it and, yes. and just feel like, like I'm, I'm with it. I'm in it or something. And that that turns the corner on that uh, clenching up response. Yes. And then once you're in, you can tolerate a lot more. Though, though I do hit kind of a threshold. I'm like, okay, that's enough. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and, and so what do you do when you get to that point? Well, I mean, you can stop. A, I mean, you know, there's no reason why you why you need to do a 30 minute ice bath a day. Like that's sort of crazy. And I do yeah. know people who do that, but I don't know why they do that. Because what you're trying to do is 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 flip that toggle right between right. fight or flight and rest and digest. And right. you can do that. You know, obviously, the longer you stay in the ice bath the more that your body wants to flip that switch over to the other side. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and what you're, what you're explaining is like, you're like, I get out of the flight bath. Well, that was the flight response, right? It was like, all right, we're getting the fuck out. Yeah. 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 And And, it's, but, but, and are we getting, are we discussing here hormesis? Does he? Yes. Yeah. So why don't you describe that a little bit? We still have, we still have consciousness to go, but tell me about hormesis. (laughs) So hormesis is the idea that if you put yourself under stressful conditions, that stress makes you stronger until it doesn't, right? You know, so you, so, 
the the classic example is is birds right within bird eggs right where if you put just a little bit of arsenic on a bird egg they they, they you produce more viable offspring which is mm. crazy but mm. if you put too much they all die mm. <laughs> so so the idea is that it, just a little bit of poison will make you much stronger and and the, and and the trick by using any sort of hormetic exercise is not to get too much so you have to practice within bounds you have to be very careful uh, with doing it but it is that fact that you have a stress that then uh, and then a response where your body steps up and actually improves against that challenge and, and that's people are toying with the idea that that could be helpful in reducing the risk for coronavirus we're sure. not prescribing that don't don't confuse it with being prescribed <laughs> but, but it's an interesting idea it's an right interesting- right and, and you know honestly with um you know, we can't say what's going to help coronavirus. Follow the public health. Yeah, you know, yeah, for rules, sure. Of course. 100%. But um, there's nothing to be said, you know, certainly make your body more resilient right now, right? Like yeah. generalize resilience, you know, things like uh, this ice water practice, this breathing practice, um, and other things like this heat practice, like going into saunas, these things stress your system and force you to get stronger. Now, Will it cure anything? I don't know, but I think my guess is it's going to give you a better shot. Is there a reason you call it the wedge? Yeah, it's because of this idea of, of separating stimulus and response. It's that idea is that my mind, my intention was sort of like forcing that st- the, something between the ice water and my bodily reactions. Uh, is it like something you felt like, oh, this feels like a wedge between, you know, like you experienced it or did you sit and think about it and said, what's a word that describes it? Or did it come yeah. into your mind? Yeah. It was instantaneous when yeah. I was in the water. Like I was like looking at Wim and I was like, this is the wedge. And, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I, go ahead. There, there's another time. So this is like, so, so that separating stimulus and response is, is what we're talking about with ice water. But I want to actually give you an example of the removing of it, which is, which is also really cool. Hmm. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to do in this book was put myself in multiple situations that where then I could control myself in, in a strong stimulus. So I went to Stanford and hung out with Andrew Huberman up at the, the Huberman lab. He's a neuroscientist. And he was trying to teach me about fear. And this is where I sort of got the idea of neural symbols mm. from. Um, and he was putting you into a VR simulator with virtual sharks, with people who are anxiety sensitive. So people who are you know prone for anxiety and the sharks would produce a reliable stimulus to produce a sort of a not quite anxiety attack, but to make them anxious. And then he would measure their autonomic arousal in that situation. So he used this to sort of describe fear. And so I was super excited to go swim with his virtual sharks and learn about my fear sensations. But it turns out I'm not scared of virtual sharks. Like, oh. it was like, like sort of a, it was like, ah, oh, these are sort of lame. So I, when I left his lab, I was pretty sort of like bummed out. I was like, huh, I didn't find my wedge in this environment. Thanks for the description. But then I got this um, message on my phone from a guy named Tony, who I know, who, who said, Scott, you got to go meet my friend, Michael Castro Giovanni. He will throw kettlebells at you and put you into an instantaneous flow state, which mm. I believe is the, it gets the award for like the douchiest message ever sent via text. Uh, and, and, but you know, I was like, all right, well, what is this about? And like, for me, kettlebells are like sort of boring and throwing kettlebells, you know, what comes into your mind when someone says, I'm going to throw a kettlebell at you. You're like, I'm going to break my foot. Right. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's in your my mind. Shoulder apart. So I go meet him and we, we hang out in San Francisco. Uh, and he, Michael, like just to paint the picture for you, Michael is basically a gorilla in human mm. form. He yeah. is his, his arms are like my legs, you know, he's sort of hunched over his butts out his, his, his knuckles. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they, they drag on the ground. I mean, he is a dangerous looking dude. And when you have two people facing off against each other, right. And one of them's holding essentially a cannonball because a kettlebell is like a cannonball. It's like a weapon. This is an aggressive, potentially dangerous, sort of scary situation. And, and so Michael, what he does is he says, all right, Scott, I'm going to throw this at you. And there's, there's three, I'm going to do three things before I throw it. The first time he swings it, it comes up between us and we are looking in each other's eyes. Mm. And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> I'm scared. The next time he, he brings it up, you, he, we go from looking in each other's eyes to the kettlebell. So now we're focused on the thing that's about to smash my foot. 
And on the third time he throws it, and I'm still looking right at the kettlebell, he lets go, it flips through the air, my butt puckers, strong enough to like form a diamond out of coal, but I grab that, that kettlebell and all of a sudden, it goes between my legs, I let it go and it flies back to him. And, and we go from essentially what could be an aggressive, dangerous place into essentially dancing. Communion, there. yeah, you get that. Because it's dangerous, because all of a sudden we were in the presence of danger and mm-hmm. our movements start coordinating automatically. It's mm-hmm. like it's like we're, we're not even thinking anymore. We're just moving because we're in the presence of that threat. And this, all of a sudden, this, this exercise goes from being like the douchiest thing you've ever heard of, just to look good on Instagram, to something about trust, something about empathy, something about connection. And, uh, and the practice is actually, I think, really, really beautiful and really wonderful because it's a way to communicate without words. And this is an example of how we remove the wedge, right? Where you're not trying to fight this image. We're actually trying to go automatically. So there's no... Um, thinking about the the response, the threat is there, and you just act, uh, yeah. and and so that's the, that's the other way that the wedge works, so, and this is also what they call a flow state. But but it's not a single skull flow state; it's a two skull, which is probably right. why this all evolved, right? Is so when we were hunting mammoths, we could be in a in a, a communion without even using language, and probably oh, develop right. before language, right? Totally. It's in wolves, right? It's, it's, it's in, it's, it's, it, you know, we're not the only people that we were going to go into consciousness, right? We're going um, there. It, consciousness is there so that, so as, as a way to make decisions about the environment, it's a, it's a way to make decisions about the world, but we're also all connected, right? right. Like, like I'm here and I'm talking to you and I'm influencing you in a way that yeah. may possibly affect you in the future, right? You know, all things going perfectly, you're gonna be like, oh, there's a cool idea there. And somehow that influences your life. We're, how did that work, right? I'm just, we're not even in the same room. We're not even in the same state right now, but I'm moving ideas from me to you. And and so what is the limits of the human body and the human mind? It's really sort of like a like a pool of ideas. And, and, and one of the things I like to think about in the book is that we're not just I'm not me and you're not you. We're all sort of more part of something which is much bigger than us. Consciousness is sort of like almost like a super organism in a way. Yeah. So, so I don't disagree. Uh, and uh, people that listen to this podcast have heard me speculate about these things. And I believe consciousness is a, at least a two skull experience. Mm. In other words, consciousness emerges from the back and forth exchange of exactly the kind of material you're talking about here in that flow state with the kettlebells, starting with you and baby and mom. And you literally see yourself reflected back from mom, which pulls you out of your skull into a second state, which I would call consciousness, where you can connect to your primary states, but understand them because they're reflected back from another human. Right. So, and, and there, and so there, therefore for me, uh, consciousness has to, the, each other's consciousness has to leave a residual on us. Right. Mm-hmm. So your mom's got a residual on you and my, and your dad. And so we leave pieces of ourselves behind on one another right. in some fashion. Right. And sometimes I think that's what psychics are doing when they, you know, do their readings and stuff. They're just picking up on these parts of Mm-hmm. Or something, you know, who knows? But but there that there's ways to intuit these parts of us that are in, for at least for important relationships in our life that are mm-hmm. left behind on us. Yeah, I, I, no, it makes perfect sense. I, I am I am right here with you, yeah. Doctor Drew. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other th- way I like to think of it is like sort of like nested Russian dolls, right? Is that yeah. we have a certain. Um, view of consciousness where we are right now. Like I am here and I'm Scott, right? I'm in a body, right? But below me, uh, uh, what's going on in my body? Like I know if I change my gut bacteria, for instance, right? My personality changes. Mm -hmm. So where was the consciousness in that moment, right? Was it in my gut or was it in my brain? Or was it, is it like you're saying, it's this communication between these two things. Uh, And, you know, I have this, this guess about the immune system, right? Where we, where, where how, how many people have, have suggested the immune system has some element of consciousness. And I want to run something by you since you're a yeah. doctor. Right. Um, 
I was taking an, an immunology class for, up at CU Boulder recently. Um, I had the I was fortunate to be able to you know uh, take some courses there, and and one of the things the doctor said um, is we, we is is he he put up a picture of a macrophage on the slide projector, and a macrophage is essentially this amorphous cellular blob that goes around and eats bacteria and other like things that are in your body. Kind right? of a kind of a cleanup system, kind of. Yeah. So the macrophage, um, he said as, uh, and he says, you know, he has all these descriptions for how the macrophage works. It's like there's chemical, you know, uh, locks and keys on on the outside of the cell wall and sort of goes around and and it's totally um, mechanical. Mm -hmm. But when I look at this macrophage, Mm -hmm. I'm like, it looks like it's hunting because it touches a red blood cell. It touches something else. And it's like, oh, this thing, I'm going to go eat it. And, and it looks something like a choice to me. But then yeah. he said something that was really crazy. He says, it's morphologically identical to an amoeba. Right. We, it is. And, and then he. Us. Well, but remember, we, we are sort of layered. Um, there's a lot of. Um, Parasitic, you know, what, what's what I'm looking for? Symbiosis, symbiotic, I mean, mitochondria yeah. or bacteria, right? That's what we, how we got mm-hmm. animal cells. Some bacteria found its way inside and created, started paying us energy. off by giving us energy. Yeah, and same thing with the gut bacteria. It's synergistic and it's there. It's some kind of symbiotic relationship with us. And I, the immune system. Well, what's your theory? Well, some, some amoeba found a way into our system and learned how to live with us. Maybe. I mean, we can certainly produce the amoeba looking thing through our DNA. Like that's yep. clear. But yep. what, what was interesting to me is that, so take at the end of uh, my previous book, What Doesn't Kill Us, I ended up climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro, right? Yep. And I was on the top of this mountain and I had this like sort of spiritual insight, uh, which was, you know, and remember, I'm basically naked and it's negative 32 outside. So I've done something which is crazy. Okay. Yes. And then yes, I'm, on the top of the, I'm on the top of this mountain and I'm thinking to myself, um, I didn't get here because I forced myself up. I came up here because I worked with the sense of my sensations in the environment and I, and I, and, and I was part of the environment. And then I had the cheesiest thought that I ever had in my life, which is I am not on the mountain. I am the mountain. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had this sort of this insight, but at the same time that I'm on top of this mountain and I'm, and I'm releasing who knows how many hormones and what concoction is going in my body, those um, gut bacteria and those macrophages are also on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. They, they, don't, they can't think of it. They don't know what Kilimanjaro is. There's no macrophage idea of it, but they are experiencing it through the lens of my body in that hormonal cocktail that they are swimming in. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that a lot of what the wedge is doing is this sort of telescoping communication. Like I'm giving myself certain sensations into my body and those things in my body respond to those mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, cr- I'm trying to sort of create internal and external environments. And the key is deciding what those sensations mean when they come in, because, you know, when those sensations rocket up the peripheral nerves into my brain, if I think fight or flight, I drop fight or flight hormones. But if I think rest and digest, I drop rest and digest hormones. And that affects my internal biology. Well, that's what I was going to say, is is that we're used to responding to the body and the sensory system as opposed to sending information back to essentially regulate it or control it. Yeah. Right? And so you're saying you can be in control of it. Um, it doesn't have to be strictly a command center. It can also be a, an interactive. It can mm-hmm. be interactive between yeah. you, the environment, and then the interoceptive world. Which yes. the, the, I think you know the the first step. It seems to me is being aware of the interoceptive world. I mean, most it seems like most people aren't even aware of that, right? Oh yeah, and and you know, there's a whole chapter on interoception where I go to um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, to hang out with a guy named Justin Feinstein, and he might actually be great on your show. You should write down his name. Okay. He's he he runs probably the best, at least the world's most well-renowned float research center, where you put people into flotation tanks uh, and then study their responses. And his idea, he had this really cool study of people who uh, had uh, major anxiety disorders, oftentimes PTSD, think soldiers who are in Afghanistan, that sort of thing. And he would put them in float tanks uh, and float, sorry, 
a float tank for the people who aren't aware of it is basically a very is a very high density salt solution where you lie on it and uh, you can float and then they make it really dark and it's about as close as you can get to having no sensation of the environment as we can right. create without right. like taking your brain out and putting it into a jar uh, so it's turning down all of the stimulation and so when we put this when he put these um veterans and people with major anxiety disorder inside of the float tanks, what happened is they started noticing their heartbeats for the first time. They started be noticing their breathing and the creaking of their joints. And when they got out, he saw amazing improvements in their overall anxiety. And these improvements persisted for um, a month after. So he did three questionnaires. I mean, there may have been four questionnaires uh, on their state and just one at one hour in a float tank sort of changed their life. And I think the reason for this actually comes back down to neural symbols, where if you think about this soldier and there's the apocryphal story of a soldier in Afghanistan who's walking down the street and the street's fine. There's a certain quality of light and there's, you know, the tea cellar and some children's voices and car traffic and all the normal things you'd have. And then boom, right? The, the roadside bomb goes off and his buddy gets killed and he's thrown to the ground. And all of a sudden his adrenaline spikes and his, his heart's popping in his ears. And all of those sensations he had were wired into, into that moment of trauma and anxiety so that when he goes back home, he might see that certain quality of light and it triggers the panic attack. It brings him back to that moment. Or, you know, his heart's always beating. And the last time he sensed his heart was in the in in that uh, that traumatic Anxious. environment. Oh. Uh, and now it's it's always giving him that anxious stimulus. Oh, interesting. So it's so, like parsing out all the different stimuli. Right. So we put him into this float tank, and he's like, oh. I can sense my heart. And actually, the, the, and he has really, the paper on it has like their own words about what they thought about the float tank. And there was yeah. actually a soldier in there who was like, I could sense my heart. And it was like the first time it was a positive experience. Yeah, the last it, time I, as it, somebody with panic and anxiety, I can tell you that when, when these things extinguish is when you experience a stimulus that normally mm -hmm. evokes it. And you, you, you literally a thought occurs to you, which is, oh, I can have this experience and not panic. It's like, like it's possible. It, it just, it just, it goes, it goes away like that. It just goes away. It's interesting. So that's fascinating. So do they, are there other stimuli they have to parse out in the same guys or usually there's just one main one like breathing or heartbeat, that kind of thing. You mean in the float tank? Um, yeah. It, it, it's anything interoceptive. So interoception right. means the sense of the body. We've so, used so, this word quite a lot. Um, and yeah, it's any, cause you're, cause you know, these neural symbols, I gave the example of the ice bath as just one, but really you're sensing a thousand things right now that are yeah. just sub-perceptual. You, you know, there's quality of air, there's a smell. You're not even paying attention to most of it, but your brain is still processing it and they still plays on your emotions. Um, but, you know, we did mention, um, you mentioned the amygdala earlier. So I want to tell you the next thing that happened to me at Feinstein's lab, which is super cool. So he said, hey, you've been doing this breath work for a while. And the Wim Hof, breathing method is um, you hyperventilate and you exhale and you hyperventilate and you exhale and, and you hold your breath for a really long period of time. Uh, and, and that's the, the method that method there. And, and one of the, the outcomes of this is you actually have a pretty high tolerance to carbon dioxide in your body uh, because you have these really long breath holds I and, see. and you you're just get, you get used to it. To exactly. Yeah. So what he did is he had been studying uh, people with damaged amygdala. So the amygdala is the fear center in the brain. And he, and, and there's uh, probably get, can't get into too much of this in the book, but essentially um, carbon dioxide can trigger panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And when you have, if you go to a cognitive behavioral therapy session, if somebody has repeated panic attacks, one of the things that they can do to you is induce a panic attack into a person in a safe setting so like in the doctor's office, by giving you a, a hit of 32% CO2, and this will trigger a panic attack, you'll, your breath will go crazy, your adrenaline will spike, and then you'll realize, in theory, that uh, the panic attack's not so bad. Like you can control this, and it's, it's exposure yeah. therapy. Yeah, yeah. So, so what Feinstein found out is that even people with damaged amygdala, which means the amygdala is the fear center, it's people who are basically biologically immune to fear 
can be dosed with CO2 and they will also have a panic attack. And he has these really great um, studies about like all of these people who are like, yeah, you know, someone was putting a gun in my face. I just didn't even sweat. And then they just have this bag of air on them and they freak out. So he says, Scott, I want to test you. And I was like, oh, okay, weird. Um, I can't wait because I, I jump into these things. And so I sit down across from him and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to freak out. Like I'm just going to go nuts here. And the test is um, you, you take an inhale and then you just rate your anxiety on like a one to 10 scale. And you're supposed to do it three times, press this button, you get the air. You're supposed to do that three times over 30 minutes. And that's what he, and he's just sitting across me and, and we're just going to see it, how it works. And he showed me a, um, sort of a, a tape recording of a woman who took this, had the damaged amygdala and like ran out of the room, like full on, mm. like really exaggerated response. So I take it. My first inhale was like this transcendent experience that I have at the end of a long breath hold in the Wim Hof stuff where I'm feeling great. Like it's this joyous thing for me. And I'm like, whoa, this is cool. It tastes like citrus because <laughs> it's acidic, right? And so then I press the button 11 times in the course of 15 minutes before he's like, yeah, I think we got enough here. <laughs> and, and essentially, if you're able... One, he said, he's never seen this before, that you can actually change the way your body responds innately to CO2. And I trained my chemo receptors um, wow. to this. But the other thing he says, and now he's running an NIH study on this very topic, is that if we can train CO2 tolerance in a person, will that make them less anxious in general? Hmm. Will you be able to change their anxiety profile? Because who cares about the dude with the bag, right? Yeah. But how can this change the way where we're, we're, we deal with any sort of stressful situation? So there's a lot of like breath work ideas that can come out of this and a lot of like really cool medical research that's coming out of this work. Well, Scott, it, it, I'm running out of time. It's just a privilege to talk to you. And obviously there's a lot to be learned. That's why everyone needs to go to the book. Everybody needs to buy the book, The Wedge. <laughs> come on, if you, want to, if you want to go all the way with this, it's The Wedge, Evolution, Consciousness, Stress, and the Key to Human Resilience. We didn't talk about evolution, really, did we? No. Except the extent to which the social brain evolves and that the flow you were with with the kettlebells is probably part of our evolutionary heritage. And any and, last little note on evolution before we wrap this up? Yeah, so evolution, I mean, it, the idea is this, is that we evolved with stresses, right? The reason why we can sense the world is because those senses evolved and were evolutionarily ad adaptive. They let us survive. And, and, and by paying attention to our senses, that we get information about the world that affects our physiology. And we were designed to do this. In fact, every creature in the world was designed to do this. And we came from constantly varying, constantly challenging environments. And the problem with the modern world is that we live in an unchallenging environment. Yes, yes. we have things that scare us, right? COVID's out there. Twitter wars are out there. There are politicians we like or don't like out there. There's all of that stuff in the world, but that is not actually a threat the way we're designed to deal with it. What we need are physical outputs, physical responses to that stress. And that's what the wedge is all about. It's did trying to tell, find ways. Did you tell Adam that particular construct? Because he's, he's sort of been saying things like that for a while. Did, did you discuss that with him? Uh, I'm the reason why Adam takes ice baths. No, I China. know that. And I, I think you did the breathing thing with him too, right? Where he swam across mm -hmm. his pool. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. But, but he he literally, I think this, he he has been saying, Gary, you know what I'm talking about? Where he says essentially that we create problems because we're mm -hmm. because we really don't have any. Yeah, absolutely. If it's okay, I would like to take credit for all of Adam's most brilliant right. um, sure. uh, statements. And anything that dumb he says, that's all him. It's all right, fair enough. <laughs> it's okay. I don't care where he gets it from. It's all good. You know, he knows what's worth repeating. It's good. It takes some judgment to be able to see that. So, totally. uh, Scott, again, the website is Scott Carney, C-A-R-N-E-Y.com, The Wedge, Evolution, Consciousness, and Stress, Key to Human Resilience. And uh, you've certainly convinced me to continue my cold showers, which I had been off of for a while and I started up again about a month ago. And, yeah. um, and I think it's doing something. I do. I, I, it, we didn't even talk about the, the idea of sort of willfulness, of willing yourself into yeah. uncomfortable situations. You know, part of that choosing to go towards the wedge, right? Oh, yeah. There's a lot oh. packed into that too. 
the hardest thing a human has ever done is sit in a warm shower and turn around and turn the knob to cold. I am convinced that that is the hardest thing that we can do. And, and I, but I've gotten to the point now where if I don't do it, I start to feel, I don't know, guilty or weird or like I'm missing mm-hmm. something. And mm-hmm. uh, it certainly is easier and easier the more you do it. That is for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm convinced from talking to you, I should do it a little bit longer too. Maybe. Maybe. Well, we need to throw some kettlebells next time I'm out in LA. Yeah, absolutely. Gonna, that gonna sounds awesome. Also, my shitty shoulders, but uh, except for that, I should be able to get into the flow. Uh, you, right, Scott, I think thank you're you fine. for joining us, and uh, no doubt we'll see you again soon. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D R D R E W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.